What a truly, you know, I, if, I'm sure you guys have a lot of speakers here and this is the part where they get up and talk about what an honor it is to be here and how special the church is. But let me tell you why they do that every time. Because it's true. What God is doing here at Vibrant Church um, is really special. And I hope you know that. I was talking to somebody before service and I just said, you know, I've been in church my whole life. I'm a fourth generation preacher's kid. And uh, there is a value, I don't know how to quantify it, but there is a value on being a part of a great church that adds value to your life in a way that when you find a great church, don't let it go. When you find a great pastor and a great leader, don't let it go. And, um, and you have that here, you have that here. I was I actually drove down from Louisville uh, for a lot of different reasons, but mainly because I have four kids and I like seven hours by myself in the car. <laughs> Pastor Eason said, well, you wanna fly? I said, are you kidding? I get seven hours by myself? I'll drive. Um, but I was just driving. I mean, it was just like, no, I'm in Mississippi. It's just like nothing, nothing, nothing. Bam, Vibrant Church. <laughs> wow. Well, amazing, amazing. But I do love uh, your pastor, Pastor Ethan, Lena, their family. Good friends now, going on almost on 10 years. And uh, just to see from a distance what God is doing here, um, it really is just so special. And while you're standing, I wanna read a, a scripture from Matthew chapter 11. There are all kinds of great verses in, in the gospels. Lots of great things Jesus said. I don't know how you rank them. John 3, 16's up there. But for me, this verse that I'm about to read, matter of fact, I have it on the wall, or had it on the wall in our office at our church. For me, if John 3.16 is first, this is number two. The words that Jesus said, I think it goes so beautifully with uh, what you've been talking about the last few weeks, about having peace in an anxious world. Matthew 11, 28 through 30, this is what, what Jesus said. He said, come to me, all of you who are weary and carry heavy burdens, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you, let me teach you, because I am humble and gentle at heart. You'll find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy to bear, and the burden I give you is light. I love these words because maybe you've heard them before. I don't know, you're here on a Wednesday night, so maybe you've heard them before, probably. But sometimes we can take verses like this and maybe we know them or we take them for granted. But in these words, there is something, Jesus is saying something so incredible, so advantageous to you and to me if you, if you read it there, if you heard it. Jesus actually said that we could come to him when we're feeling weary and tired and heavy and he'll help us. And the way that he'll help us is he will teach us. He'll teach us a new way of life, a new way to do this thing, a new way to parent, a new way to run a business, a, a new way to be a husband, a new way to be a dad, a new way to be a college student. There is a way that he can teach us, but he won't teach us heavy-handedly. He'll teach us with a humble and a gentle spirit. Love that about Jesus. And then he said at the very end, he said, and he said, the yoke that I'll give you what I'll put on your shoulders, what I'll give you to carry, it's going to feel easier to bear 
and it will feel lighter. And I don't know about you, but I wouldn't mind life feeling a little bit easier to bear and a little lighter. Anybody in the room would say, I wouldn't mind life being a little easier to bear and a little lighter to carry. I wanna pray for us before we're seated. Uh, I've already said it, but it is an honor to be here, to have a chance to speak into this church and to speak into this topic of peace in an anxious world, and we'll do that, but I wanna pray for us first. God, would you take these next few moments and do something beyond just a natural thing? Would you take all the words that I'm gonna say and do something beyond the power of those words? God, I pray tonight for every person in the room who is weary and tired. I pray for every person in the room tonight who needs life to be a little easier to bear and to feel a little bit lighter. God, I pray that in these next few moments, you would teach us with that humble and gentle spirit you said you would. God, in these next few minutes, will you teach us so we can leave here a little bit lighter? In Jesus' name we pray. Everybody said amen. 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 You could be seated. Six months ago, um, actually May 1st was exactly six months ago, released a book called Deep Change, uh, a third book that had the opportunity to write. Released a book called Deep Change, How to Have Spiritual Depth in a Shallow World. That's actually why Pastor Ethan, one of the reasons Pastor Ethan called me, because I became obsessed with this idea or this question of how does a relationship with Jesus Christ change us, not just on the exterior not just making us a little bit better, but really change us so deeply that as we exist in this world around us, that we're not just a little bit better than we were, but that we are dramatically, radically different, transformed, like the Bible says that we could be. And really just got obsessed with this idea about all of the different areas of my life how I could try to and how you could try to be more like Jesus, not just in action, but in essence. And here's what I mean by that. How many people remember, I'm showing my age a little bit, but how many people remember the WWJD bracelets? Anybody have a WWJD bracelet? Those things were awesome. I don't know if they still sell them, but that'd be cool to have one. What would Jesus do? Those were great. And the message of that was that Hey, when you find yourself in a situation, do what Jesus would do. And I think that's an amazing message. We need to try that more. But really, I've been kind of preoccupied, instead of just wondering what Jesus would do, I've really been kind of preoccupied with this idea of what kind of person was Jesus. Because I don't wanna just be at the sideline of my daughter's soccer games and do what Jesus would do. I wanna be the kind of person that Jesus was, like his essence. I don't wanna just you know, as a husband, do what Jesus would do. I wanna try to, I wanna try to be like he was as a person in, in essence. And I think this message really is, is, is needed now for all of us as Christians because I don't know if you've been paying attention, but it feels like the world is losing its mind. Anybody know what I'm talking about? People are going crazy. And so as we live in this world, as we go to our jobs and we're at the ball field and we're at our college classes and our high school 
hallways and neighborhoods, as we're living this life, how can we be more like Jesus, not by gripping our hands together and, and biting our lip and trying our best to not be bad and do good and be like Jesus, but how could we actually become the type of person who is at peace in a world that seems to be going crazy? in a world that's so anxious and so fearful, how could we be like Jesus going through this life and being a, a non-anxious presence? That's really what I wanna try to talk to you about tonight in these minutes is, is how you and I could embody that, that spirit of Jesus. A few summers ago, I uh, read a, a biography on the life of Diedrich Bonhoeffer. It was actually two summers ago, and you're probably familiar with Diedrich Bonhoeffer, but if not, he was a young German pastor, theologian, early 30s, during World War II. And um, obviously, as you might expect, was incredibly troubled by Hitler and the Reich and what was happening. He was, in, he was opposed to everything that Hitler was doing and eventually took a stand against that, was part of a, a, a team of people who tried to uh, assassinate Hitler, it didn't work, he was arrested, he was killed for it. But in this biography about Bonhoeffer, there, there was, it talked about how as a pastor during this time, he was incredibly troubled by his peers as pastors and all of the Christians who were living in Germany during this time who were doing nothing about it. They, they, the way he describes it, he says they had lost their ability to reason. They had lost their ability to think and to logic and to, they were so afraid of what was happening that they had lost the ability to distinguish right from wrong and to be helpful. I actually wanna read a passage from, from that biography because I think it's so important to, to you and me. He, it says this in, in the book, it says, in this day, talking about during the war, in this day, the danger was from the hollowing effects of totalitarianism and the leveling of all thought and feeling to the basest instincts. Against such a corruption, only quality could mount an adequate defense. But quality must cease to identify itself with privilege and rediscover the imperative of honor this meant in social terms, renouncing the pursuit of position and the cult of celebrity in favor of an opening upward and downward, particularly in the choice of one's friends, a delight in private life, and the courage for public life. Now that was a mouthful. But here's what Bonhoeffer was saying. He was saying that he, he lived in a time when people had lost the ability to think and to reason because they were so afraid, they were so overwhelmed, and they had been corrupted. He would say their souls had been corrupted, and because of this fear and this anxiety that they were experiencing, they had lost the skills that they needed to be able to think straight and to, and to feel right. And so Bonhoeffer concluded that the only thing that would really make a difference was what he called a quality life. That when you're dealing with a society and a culture like this, that the only thing that really helps people is what he calls a quality life, but not a quality life in the sense of nicer things or uh, more of a platform. The way that Bonhoeffer defined a quality life was the quality of your friends, the quality of your private life and the courage that you had to live a public life. 
This was the way that he defined a quality life. The quality of your friends, the, the quality of your private life, and the courage you showed in your public life. I think that's incredibly relevant to where you and I are living today. In a world that is overly anxious and is afraid, so many things feel unstable. Bonhoeffer would say, if we really wanna make a difference, we really want to help the community and the society that we're living in, the best way to do it is for you and I to assess the quality of our friendships, the quality of our private life, and the amount of courage that we have to live a public life. And I wanna be really sure right up front here, I wanna point out that we are not living in the middle of World War II. I'm not comparing social media or 24-hour news to facing an evil dictator or anything like that. But I do believe that we're living in a time where many people have lost their ability to think and reason. We are living in that time. And I do believe that there is a premium on quality living. I do believe the best thing you could do for your neighborhood or the families that are on your kids' sports teams or the peers that you work with at your job, I believe the best thing that you and I could do is live a quality life to differentiate ourselves from the chaos of everything else that they see. Quality friends, quality private life, the courage to live a public life. This is an opportunity that we have because right now, scientists are starting to talk about the mental health crisis in our world using terms of an epidemic. What's happening on college campuses with mental health. I, I parent a teenager. What's happening in high schools was me with mental health. In a recent Pew uh, survey, 39% of people said they felt more anxious this year than last year. Four out of 10 people, more anxious this year than last year. And so often, that anxiety comes out as fear and anger. And when you mix fear and anger together, you get outrage. Anytime you take fear and you put it with anger and you hand it to an anxious person, what you're going to get is you're going to get outrage. And more and more, what we are experiencing is a culture of outrage. Have you noticed this? I'm sure you have. If you are a teacher and you've had to deal with parents, I, I'm married to a high school teacher. Students and parents and families and faculty, outraged. If you're a business owner, you've probably noticed it maybe in some of your client relationships and customers. Hey, if you work a cash register, <laughs> you, you've probably realized that people are outraged we see it in politics. People are enraged. It's the way politicians get elected, to get you outraged at the other side, afraid, anxious, angry. And so the question is, what do we do? I mean, I could stand up here all night and, and keep telling you about the problem. But as people who are filled with the Spirit of God, living in a time like this, what do we do? How do we live that quality life? How can, we, how can we be more like Jesus in a world that feels more and more corrupted? I love that question, by the way. I love that question. 
I've spent the last two years of my life trying to find an answer to that question. How can we be more like Jesus, embody the essence of Jesus in a world that feels more and more corrupted? Well, back in the 90s, there was a, uh, a rabbi and a, a, a family therapist named Edwin Friedman. He wrote several books and he was actually well-known in, in his field. He was an advisor to the White House, lived in the Washington area, but he was a rabbi and a family therapist. And he wrote a book called Failure of Nerve. It was, he put it out in about 1996. He, he passed away actually before the book was published. And uh, a few summers ago when I was on a sabbatical from, from the church where I was pastoring, I picked up the book, I read it that summer, and I, I would say it's probably one of the most impactful books I've ever read, incredibly dense. I, I, I can't even recommend it to you because it was that dense, it was, it was very textbooky. But as I was reading that book, there, it, pieces began to come together for me. As Friedman described, and this was in 1996, what he calls the culture of outrage that I was just describing, what he calls that is an overly anxious society. It's a psychological, it's a clinical term, but it's an overly anxious society. And when I say anxious, don't just think of anxiety as a type of social disorder. That's kind of how we commonly think of it now, but anxiety is really anytime you're experiencing worry or unease or nervousness, which by the way is all of us. Anybody felt a little bit worried, a little bit uneasy? A little nervousness? We all, that, that's, that's that anxiety. And so Friedman argued that anytime a group of people, whether it's a family or an organization, a school system, a country, a church, that anytime a group of people are together and they are feeling overly anxious, then, then he, he says they get stuck in a, in a vicious cycle, a vicious cycle. And I actually wanna show you uh, an image up on the screen. They're gonna put it up there for you. And this is, this is something from his book. But Friedman describes it as a vicious cycle of an overly anxious society. And he describes five characteristics, and we don't have time to get into all of this, but if you'll just bear with me for a moment, I do wanna kind of walk you through a few of, 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 the, of the steps or of the, the descriptions of this overly anxious society because I, I do believe when we get to the end of it, it's gonna be incredibly helpful for you. But Friedman says that anytime you find an overly anxious society, family, church, whatever, anytime you find that overly anxious society, you're gonna find a few characteristics that create this cycle. And the first uh, description, he says, is reactivity. The first characteristic of an overly anxious society is reactivity. And by reactivity, he means this uh, heavy emphasis on feelings where we get caught um, reacting to the world around us. We begin to believe that the world needs our reaction. Everything that happens, we have a reaction to it, that we are not impartial to anything, that we have reactions to everything. Everything feels personal. Everything is argumentative. And he says in an overly anxious organization or society, he said that calm is seen as a lack of concern and outrage is seen as passion and that there's a loss of playfulness because everything is a big deal. We see this in our news cycles where there are news stories and the story is based on a tweet from a celebrity. So the story is, about, is a reaction to a reaction from a celebrity. 
And so we live in this as well. This is not just them out there. This is also us where it's like we feel like we've got, we're entitled to react in some way. Or even if we don't say it out loud, there's reaction always. Everything that's happening around us. Anybody like accidentally gone a little too early at a four-way stop recently? Reactivity. So that's the first characteristic Friedman would say. And anytime you're getting a reactive culture, then he says what happens next is hurting. H-E-R-D-I-N-G, not H-U-R-T, but H-E-R-D-I-N-G. And hurting is when you begin to lump together that reactive people find each other. And they prioritize togetherness at the expense of progress. By, and what happens is they organize around the least mature, the least dependent, the most dysfunctional members in a family. So if there's someone in a family who's holding the family back, once you begin to herd, then you can't make progress because everyone's concerned about the lowest, most unhealthy, most dysfunctional member. Or in an organization or at a business or in a government, we can't go forward because if we go forward, that would be bad for someone else. And so we're all gathered around making sure that progress doesn't cost anyone anything. And so disagreements are discouraged, feelings are more important than ideas, peace is valued over progress, comfort over novelty. There is a um, too much empathy, he would say. And so then from hurting, he would say, then you move into blaming because if we're reacting and we've all decided that we're not moving forward, if anyone potentially gets left behind, then we have to have somebody to blame. So Friedman would say that in an overly anxious society that when someone, when, when the group begins to herd together, they need somebody to blame. So now they begin to focus on victimization instead of personal responsibility. And they say, well, the reason we are where we are, the reason I am like I am, or the reason we can't do any better is because of, and there has to be someone to blame. In a blaming society, we're cynical of success. Everyone who's ahead of us has done something unethical. They're, they're greedy, they're uh, shady. In a culture like this, we lack motivation because it's not our fault we are where we are. We're distrusting of authority, noncommittal. So then Friedman says, after you are overly reactive and you group together and you find someone to blame, the next characteristic of an overly anxious society is he says is a quick fix mentality. And, in a, and the reason that quick fix mentality is part of this is because we have a problem, we're all together in it and we know what the problem is and so we just need somebody to fix it for us quickly so that we don't have to hurt, there's no pain, we can be certain, the answers are simple, there's a shortcut. We wanna avoid the pain necessary for change by seeking symptom relief. And I don't know if you've been paying attention, but this is actually, again, the way that a politician would get elected. Be outraged about something, get a base of people upset with you, blame someone else, and then give an easy fix to a complex problem. And then finally, Friedman says that the fifth characteristic of an overly anxious society is a lack of leadership. That you have this spiral that is happening and you can't get out of it because there's not a person or a leader with a high enough pain threshold to be able to pull whatever organization, country, school, whatever, out of this cycle. They've lost their courage 
They lack the margin to think about the future clearly. They're always managing a crisis. They're reluctant to lead with conviction or take a stand. They lack the maturity or emotional health to deal with rejection. So the reason I tell you all this, I wanted to take the time, I felt like it was important, is because written in 1996, really kind of prophetically, it was not a Christian book, but written kind of prophetically, Friedman says that anytime you get a part of a family or society, anytime you get a part of this overly anxious, this vicious cycle, you're gonna see reactivity and, and grouping together and, and blaming and wanting a quick fix, and you're gonna look around and there's not gonna be anybody who has the backbone to do anything about it. And so Friedman argues in the book, again, it was a leadership book, but I think it applies to all of us because we're all leaders. We lead something. We lead a family. We lead a business. We, we lead something. And so Friedman argues that if you're going to be a leader of any kind, whether you know it or not, you're, you're going to have to figure out a way, here's the, here's the phrase that we mentioned earlier, to be a non-anxious presence in the middle of an overly anxious group. He says, we got to figure out a way to be a non-anxious presence in the middle of an overly anxious group or situation. And again, this was not a Christian book. It was a business leadership book. But I, as I was reading this, I could not help but think about Jesus. Wasn't Jesus a non-anxious presence in the middle of an overly anxious society? And so then I began to think to myself, okay, well, how can I be an overly anxious, or a non-anxious presence? How could you be a non-anxious presence? How, how can I be someone who lives a quality life like Bonhoeffer described? In a world where so many people are lonely, how can I have real quality friendships and relationships? In a world where it seems like everyone is so stretched so thin and, and surface level, how could I have real depth with a quality private life? How could I have the courage to live a public life and, 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 and live my beliefs and stand for my beliefs? How could I do that? How could you do that in this anxious world? Well, I wanna give you five qualities. From, this is from me. This was not in the book. But I wanna kind of counter what Friedman says. And I wanna give you five qualities of a non-anxious leader or a person surrounded by emotionally charged people because every person in here is gonna leave here tonight and go home and then maybe in the morning or maybe tonight at home, I don't know. Maybe the home is emotionally charged for you. But you're gonna leave tomorrow and you're gonna go somewhere and my, my guess is that it's going to be emotionally charged. And so how, how can you and I who claim to follow Jesus be filled with the Spirit of God, how can we be a non-anxious presence, carry that essence of Jesus Christ in a emotionally charged environment. Let me give you five qualities of a person like that, a Christian like that. And all of these qualities we're gonna, we see in Jesus Christ from the gospels in his life. The first quality we see in Jesus that we could embody if we wanna be that non-anxious presence is someone who is unhurried, unhurried. You know, slow in our society today is how we describe things we don't like. The service was slow. Someone with a low IQ, IQ, we say is slow. Anything, like it's slow. We are at a grocery store and there's four people in this line and there's six people in that line and we're just inside of us, we're like, do I make the move? Do I jump? They seem to be moving a little faster. 
we're going five miles over the speed limit and somebody has the audacity to pass us on the right? I drove seven hours today, trust me, I'm all, I know all about this. I'm in the car by myself and it's emotionally charged because I'm going over the speed limit and you're passing me on the right. The message is clear in our society, slow is bad, fast is good. But spiritual depth is not a hundred yard dash. Spiritual maturity is not microwavable. And as you read through the Gospels, I don't know if you've ever noticed it before, but as you read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, here's what you will see if you look for it now. In the three years that we have cataloged in the Gospels, not one time did Jesus ever run. He walked everywhere he went, constantly interruptible. He never ran, always walking. Compare that to the way we respond to a text message or an email when someone needs something from us, right? The, the expectation of immediate availability. I'm actually, I'm, I'm making a fight for, to go back to just postage mail. Like, just get rid of all the technology. If you wanna get a hold of me, mail me a letter, put a stamp on it. <laughs> if I get it in a couple weeks, we'll see if I get back to you but I, I don't have a lot of support for that. Maybe you can sign my petition, but. And I'm not saying that Jesus had nothing to do. On the contrary, he lived with intense mission and purpose. So, so he was accomplishing a lot. He was just never in a hurry. And so this is, I believe, the first step for you and I to becoming a non-anxious presence in an emotionally charged place is to is to be unhurried. Corey Tin Boone said, if the devil can't make you sin, he'll just, he'll just make you get in a hurry. Because it does the same thing to our soul. And it's rarely the difference between obvious good and evil that causes us to miss real intimacy with God. We just get too preoccupied. We're more busy than bad, more distracted than non-spiritual. And so we've gotta be unhurried people hey, I can stand in the longer grocery line. I can walk. I can not be immediately available. I can live a life at a pace that is healthy and calm. But the second characteristic I think of a non-anxious presence in a overly emotionally charged society is someone who practices silence and solitude. Someone who practices silence and solitude. And this, only an unhurried soul can do this, by the way. Time and time again, we find Jesus getting away from the crowds early in the morning before others were awake. Time and time again, the disciples would come to him and say, man, what are you doing? You're missing a great opportunity. Everybody's looking for you. And he would say, let's, let's get away. Let's go over here. In silence, we close off our soul from sounds, noise, music, words. We take our earphones out, our AirPods out. And nothing reveals the anxiety of your interior life like silence. It's why we struggle, to, it's why we watch TV until we fall asleep. Because when you're in the room with the lights off by yourself and it's just you and your thoughts, 
It's terrifying, isn't it? In solitude, we break free from the constant awareness of others and the roles and the personas we play. And I know what some of you are thinking. You're thinking, okay, well, what do I do once I'm away and quiet? Nothing, you're doing it. No, but what do I do? No, you're doing it. You're just away and quiet. And something happens when you get away and quiet. And it takes time. You gotta recalibrate a little bit. Something happens in your soul. And the kind of person who can sit for five or 10 or 30 or 60 minutes and do nothing and say nothing is the same type of person who can sit in a conference room in an overly charged emotional environment and sit there and say nothing. It's the same kind of person who can sit on the sideline of a game when the ref, let's just call it what it is, is being awful, (laughs) missing all the calls. A person who can sit in silence for 30 minutes can bite their tongue when the ref makes a terrible call. It's okay, because I've learned to be quiet. As you become the kind of person who feels more comfortable alone and quiet, then you kind of move to this, what I would say the third characteristic of a non-anxious presence is just someone who practices prayer. Now, I grew up and am still to this day a charismatic. I'm a Pentecostal. uh, This is, you got an organ player, so I know you are. And, And so for me, prayer was always kind of presented as something that was very demonstrative, and it is at times in the book of Acts, it definitely was. But sometimes that demonstrative prayer can feel like pressure to really pray, to really pray through. And there are times, let me say it again, we, need, we gotta do that. But what I'm learning in my life is that if I become the kind of person who's unhurried and can get away and, be, and can be quiet, there is a relational type of prayer that doesn't feel like pressure. It just feels like peace. It just feels like dialogue. It just feels like talking to my heavenly father. And really what begins to happen is you become the kind of person who prays throughout your day, not because you go into a bathroom and start praying really loudly, but because you have learned to be the kind of person who when you are quiet and when you are still can just be in a prayer dialogue with God. So I can be in my car, I could be at my desk, I could be at my cubicle, I could, I could be there and I could just be praying even though I'm not demonstratively praying, I could be praying because I'm becoming the kind of person who knows how to do that. The fourth characteristic I would say, we're unhurried, we're getting away and being quiet, we're learning how to pray in that way. I think the fourth characteristic of a person, non-anxious presence, is someone who's present in the moment. Someone who's present in the moment. You know, what's crazy about these stinking phones is that we signed up for all of the apps so we could connect with people all over the world, but we can't connect with the person across the table anymore. I started a habit in my house and I haven't convinced my wife and my daughter to do it yet, but I put the phone to bed before I go to bed. Like it has an earlier bedtime than me. And uh, it's in the kitchen, not in the bedroom, because I know I'll pick it up if it's in the bedroom. But the kind of person who can put their phone away and not instinctively go and grab it is the kind of person who can be present in a moment with a person. Look somebody in the eye. Isn't this what Jesus did? Wherever he was, whoever needed him, he was there with them. 
the woman at the well, the woman caught in adultery, Nicodemus, the woman with the issue of blood, Jairus on the way to his house. How many times are we on our phones or we're doing something else, we're distracted, we're, we're missing moments? But the kind of person who can be present is the kind of person who's prayerful and alone and quiet and unhurried. Let me give you one more, and I think you're probably with me on the first four, because that sounds like a great like mental health day, you know? Like just get to be unhurried and quiet, and like I like that, you know? I'll sign up for that, that would be great. But I think the fifth quality of a non-anxious presence in an emotionally charged world is someone who is prophetic. And maybe this is where some of you go like, whoa, I was with you on like the, put my phone away, but now you're asking me to be prophetic. Like does that mean I'm supposed to, you know, predict the future? No, that's not what it means. That's one way that prophets were used in the Bible. But prophecy just means that you communicate on behalf of God to another person. It can be encouragement. It can be advice. It can be a compliment. It's just, prophecy is just any time you communicate from God to a person. So yes, it can be very specific, but it could also be very generic. And so we... As we become an unhurried person who gets away and is quiet and is prayerful and present, now we can be the kind of person who can speak on behalf of God to the person right in front of us. You say, not me, I could never do something like that. Well, see, I, I disagree with you. I think when you're sitting at a play date with other moms who are freaking out about the news, you're able to speak inspired word from God. I think when you're sitting around with your peers talking about inflation or the economy and there's this reactivity and there's someone to blame and there's a quick fix, you're able in that moment to speak inspired words from God from an unhurried soul that has been away with him. This is a non-anxious presence. This is Jesus. But here's the thing. All of these qualities that I'm describing to you, like all of us, even as I'm saying, you're like, yes, I want that. Yeah, I don't wanna be in a hurry. I don't wanna always be distracted. I don't wanna struggle to pray. I don't wanna not be present. Yeah, I wanna be prophetic, yeah. But we can't just hope that in the moment that's the kind of person that we'll be. We have to actually become those kinds of people. See, grace saves you, but it doesn't make decisions for you. And so you have to then begin to practice the kind of life that makes you the kind of person that you want to be. We're talking about character change, not just character and morality, but character in the in, inward parts of your life. Who are you? And so if I'm never practicing these types of qualities, then yeah, of course when I'm sitting with the moms at a play date and they're talking about the news, of course I'm going to be reactive. When they're talking about the government or inflation or a politician, of course I'm gonna be reactive because I'm not on the inside the kind of person who would not be. I'm actually the person who would be. So this is where deep change comes in. I'm gonna wrap up in just a moment, but I wanna show you one more image as we get ready to close. This is just a simple little diagram, if they have that, I'm not sure. 
that represents deep change. And really what we say at our, at our place and, and the ministry is we say that deep change occurs when, when spiritual depth and emotional health converge. Spiritual depth and emotional health. Spiritual depth is, you know, believing the right stuff and discipleship and, and, and doctrines and all of those things that, that we gotta have. But emotional health is healing from past wounds and it's, it's, it's practicing the things that uh, are in my inner life that have to be confronted. And if we are only spiritually deep people, then we will know all the right things, but we will not be the kind of person who could ever convey that like Jesus would wanna convey it. But if we're only emotionally healthy but not spiritually deep, then yeah, we'll be a great person, but we won't actually build our lives on the truth like we sang about. And so we wanna be spiritually deep, have depth to us, but also be emotionally healthy. We wanna be unhurried and get away and pray and be present with whoever's in front of us. We wanna be more like Jesus, not just in action, but in essence. We don't wanna just hold on and grip and say, I'm trying, I'm trying, I'm trying, I'm trying, I'm trying, but we wanna be like Jesus, in essence, who he was. There's a, there's a line from C.S. Lewis, and it's, he's got a lot of great books, obviously, but in Mere Christianity, there's this line from Lewis where he says, for mere improvement is not redemption, though redemption always improves people. God became man to turn creatures into sons, not simply to produce better men of the old kind, but to produce a new kind of man. It's not like teaching a horse to jump better and better, but like turning a horse into a winged creature. And the first time I read this, man, my chest felt funny because I don't know that myself or many Christians that I meet would say that since they met Jesus, they feel like their soul has wings. I think they would say they feel improved. I think they would say they feel like it's getting a little bit better. But this language that Lewis uses here says that it's possible to know Jesus in a way that it doesn't just feel like you've become a better man or woman, but it, instead it feels like you were a horse, but now you are a horse with wings. Man, I want that. I wanna feel like my soul has wings. I wanna live in this world that is losing its mind and feel as if my soul is at peace. And so the only way that I know to begin this journey, and it is a journey, to be deeply changed, to experience deep change, to have peace in an anxious world, the only way that I know to begin this journey, there's practices that if we had time, I'd love to teach you, but I think just the starting point for us tonight where we're gonna end this, that, this, that, that the only place that I know to begin is to invite the Holy Spirit all the way in. To be vulnerable enough to invite the Holy Spirit in and say, there are some things deep within me that cause me to see the world a certain way, to react a certain way, to judge people a certain way, to be afraid of certain things more than other things, to feel massive insecurity, inferiority, to live defensively, to avoid confrontation. These are all things that are deep within me that come out of me when I'm in emotionally charged environments and I don't even know them all, but Holy Spirit, you do. So I think we have to invite him in. And so here's what I would like for us to do together. Pray this prayer together. Psalm 139, verses 23 and 24. Psalm 139, verses 23 and 24 
Psalm 139 is this, this beautiful psalm about how well God knows us and the complexities and how he made us. But at the very end of that psalm, it says this, search me, O God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts, my uneasy thoughts, my nervous thoughts, my, 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 those anxious thoughts, and point out anything in me that offends you and lead me along the path of everlasting life. Can we pray that together? If they'll have that up on the screen for you. Can we pray that together? Come on, let's pray it. Search me, O oh God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. Point out anything in me that offends you and lead me along the path of everlasting life. And here's what I love about our Heavenly Father is when you invite him in and you say, okay, point out anything. Do you know how many things he could bring up? Okay, search me, test my heart, know my anxious thoughts. Okay, God, now I'm, I'm, I'm giving you permission. You point out anything in me that I need to know about that maybe I'm oblivious to. Do you know how many things he could bring up about our heavenly father who loves us so much he just gives us one little step to take. He brings up maybe through a conversation or through prayer or through a prompting or through a sermon like this, he brings up one thing and we begin to work on that thing. We begin to move towards that thing. And then maybe as we work through that, he leads us to another thing, just little by little by little, ripping back, peeling back all the parts of our soul that are causing us to live a life we don't wanna live, feel ways we don't wanna feel do things we don't wanna do. But we invite him all the way in and we say, God, search me, test me, know me, and just start pointing it out. And you're part of a church, here's what I know, you're a part of a church that'll help you take that step. You're part of a church that'll go on that journey with you. And I believe you'll begin to experience change at a deeper level than you've ever experienced it before. And you and I can be non-anxious people in emotionally charged environments. Let me pray for us. God, thank you for Jesus. Thank you that he wasn't just a savior. Man, he was, thank you that he was, but he wasn't just a savior. God, he was also an example. He didn't just come and die, he also came and lived. And in him, God, you show me what it would look like to be surrounded by overly anxious people but have a peace that passes understanding. And so God, I pray that you would help every single person in this room to begin to just take the next step as you begin to point out the things in us that can help us begin to strip away those things that need to be stripped away. God, I pray that you would begin to help us be non-anxious people. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.